Amen. Um, I mean, I'm going to share this. I don't know if I've told you all this before, but um, so when that song came out this summer, um, the song actually is very personable to me, personal to me, because uh, when that song came out this summer, we, Haley and I were sort of right in the middle of the process and trying to discern um, whether or not God was calling us to come to Travis or to stay in Ovilla, uh, where we were pastoring. And um, one of the things about that song, you may or may not know this if you're familiar with it, but with the guy who wrote it, uh, he was very purposeful in how he wrote the song and why he did. And so one of the things about the song that just, just sort of resonated with, as we were sort of going through, I wouldn't call it a rough time, but it was just a time of like deep discernment and like, God, we, we want to be in the center of your will. And so Highlands comes out and I was listening to the guy talk about uh, why he wrote the song and, and for all the purposes. And so what they did in the song was that song is not meant to be slow or fast. It's sort of meant to not ever have this really great build. It's not meant to necessarily be somber. And he uses this poetic language talking about the, the summit and the valley. And you fear this repetition, but the main idea of what he's trying to communicate in the song is this, is that most of life is spent in between the valley and the summit. Most of life is not on top of the summit where we're experiencing these great things. Most of life is not on the bottom of the pits of despair, but it's just sort of right in the middle and you're just sort of humming along. And so the song, even artistically, is meant to sort of reiterate this point that whether we're at the, va the valley and, and we're going through times of despair, like it's okay because we're still gonna praise his name and he's still worthy of it. And whether we're on the summit, that's okay too because we know that every time we summit, we know that there's another peak just beyond that and there's a valley to descend. And so most of life, we're just humming along right in the middle. And as Haley and I were, were trying to discern, this song comes and I thought we, we just... We, we didn't know what to do. We were, we were wrestling with God. We want to be in your will. And then this song comes out and then I hear the message behind it. And it's like, it's not the, the thing before us and the choice is it's not insurmountable and the Lord can overcome it. it. It's not bad. It's just right in the middle. And we just need to find our peace right alongside in the presence of the Lord and just lean into that as much as we can. And so, um, Anyway, so I asked Joe uh, not too long ago, I said, man, we've got to sing Highlands. It's one of my favorites. Uh, I love that song and I love the message uh, behind it. Well, listen, if you have your uh, copy of God's word, uh, let's open up to the book of 1 John where we're gonna continue uh, where we left off last week, looking at verses four through 10. Um, when I use the phrase uh, DIY, how many of you guys know what DIY means? Y'all know? All right, so the guys of you don't know, it just simply means this, do it yourself, Right? So when you DIY something, it means that you're responsible for making it happen, you're responsible for, for doing it. And so we live sort of in a DIY culture, and what I mean by that is this, is that uh, how, many, uh, how many Baylor Bears do I have here today? Yeah, do your little Sikkim thing, yeah, 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 okay. All right, good for you, right? So, uh, so my Baylor Bears know there's a couple down in Waco that are like the king and queen of DIY. You know what I'm talking about? Who am I talking about? Yeah, Chip, Chip, oh, Chippy, right, Joe, all right? And uh, they sort of made a living. They've made millions and millions of dollars with this sort of mindset that we're gonna take something that's really old and then we're gonna restore it and we're gonna bring new life to it. 
And, and they've made a fortune. They've amassed a fortune at, at this. And so much so that this idea of, of do-it-yourself, it sort of permeates our culture. So uh, HGTV, uh, you look at magazines at the grocery checkout and you see all of these ways in which you can be your own builder, you can be your own tinker. There's whole social media accounts that are dedicated to this, this thing where they'll just show old pictures of historic homes that, that are deteriorating and dilapidated. And then these guys will come in, they'll buy it. Chip and Joe come along or somebody like them. And they restore these homes and they make these homes just look brand new. That's partly what's going on in Fort Worth right now, just on the south side, is there's this renewal that's going along. And, And here's the question that when we see those kinds of things, here's the question that we should ask. What is it and why is it that our culture is infatuated with things like this? I believe wholeheartedly that one of the reasons why Chip and Joe's mission to, to take old things and to, to make them new again, or, or when we look at what's happening on the south side of Fort Worth and we're like, this is incredible, this is, this is wonderful. And I believe the reason why that resonates with many of us that are here today is because I believe that God has innately wired us as human beings to long for the day where we see old things become new again as a picture of ultimately what the gospel is and, and what Jesus is doing here on this earth. He, he is not just taking old things and making them new, but rather what the scripture teaches even beyond that is that God is making dead things live again. He's taking things that, that cease to exist and he's bringing them back to life. He's, he's taking his enemies and he's reshaping his enemies to become his friends, to become alongside of what he's doing here within our city and within the nations. And what's going on in 1 John 3 verses 4 through 10 is this picture of renewal and redemption that I think walks right alongside what we're seeing happen within our community. And I think it's a, a picture as we look at these houses that are being restored, these businesses that are being revitalized, what this is, make no mistake about it. These are meant to be pictures of the gospel that we're supposed to see and capture and then go and apply it to ourselves and to the people that make up our community. And so what happens is John writes this message to really uh, what I would characterize it this point in the letter, he writes this message in particular to people that have deluded themselves and have become delusional about what they believe and they've become deceived about some things. And so John comes in very pastorally and he begins to address some deception that is taking place, but he begins to remind the people about the business that God is in. And friend, I want to tell you today that God is still in the same business today in 2020. He's just as alive today as he was when when these words were first penned. He's just as alive as he was in the 50s and in the 80s and, and when you've experienced renewal and revival in your own life. And so what I want you to notice, beginning in verse four, I want you to see how God accomplishes our deliverance where he says this in verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness for sin is lawlessness. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Christ came to take away our sins. He came to accomplish something that we are incapable of accomplishing ourselves. Now, here's the truth of, of where our culture is with this message 
And all the cries for God to address the injustices of the world and the sickness in the world and the disease in the world and the inequality in the world, these are things that we long for God to deal with and to deal with them swiftly and justly. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, and make these things right. But oftentimes we get frustrated when we fail to remember the order in which God is going to accomplish those things. At some point, Christ is going to come back and and he has taken the sting out of death, but we still die and there's still sickness and there's still disease and there's still injustice and there's still inequality. Uh, There are things that happen when there's war, there's famine, there's all those things that exist within our world today. And we, we cry out for God to address those things. And the seeker says things like this, well, if there's really a God, then why doesn't he attack those things? And why doesn't he fix those things? If he's really as good as you say he is, then, then why not now, God, why did you come? And, and why not fix the war and fix the famine and fix the cancer and fix the disease? And the answer to that is really simple, but we tend to blow past it. And the answer is just this, because God understood that, yes, there's an issue with sickness. And yes, there's an issue with death. Yes, there's an issue with war and famine and those kinds of things. But first and foremost, what God understood in his infinite wisdom, that when he came, friend, he came first and foremost to deal with our sin problem before he dealt with our sick problem. And there's a day coming in which he's going to address all of those things that our hearts long for, for God to renew and for God to stop and for God to put an end to. In fact, the book of Revelation paints this really clear picture that at some point he's coming back and there's no more crying, there's no more sickness, and there's no more death, that those things are finished. But the urgency of the gospel for God's people is this. It's a recognition that when Christ came the first time, He came to deal with our sin because it was something that we could not be reconciled to God for and on our own behalf. Christ had to go in our stead. Now we have to ask the question when we look at verses like verse four and he says, this practice of sinning. And in verse five, he says, he appears to take away sins. I wanna be really clear on what sin is this morning for us. And just a basic definition of sin, it really means just to miss the mark, to miss the standard. But another way to put that is this, sin is lack of conformity to the character and the law of God. Lack of conformity to the character and the law of God. You could say it a different way. It's just simply lack of conformity to the person of Jesus. His standard and his wish and desire for his people is just, hey, be transformed into the image of my son. Be like Jesus as you walk and as you grow and as you mature and as you walk on campus and go to school and live in your homes and go to your workplaces. The goal, God's will for your life and for my life, it's just simply, hey man, pursue Jesus, lean into him, be like Christ. In any time and in any situation that we fail to conform to be like him, then we become the person of lawlessness in verse four. And so you could read it this way. Everyone who makes a practice of not conforming to the character and the person of Christ practices lawlessness. But beyond sin just being a lack of conformity, sin is really rooted in this idea more or less of identity. Friend, did you know that whatever it is that you worship, you become that thing? You are today at the very core of your being. Your identity is represented based on the things that you worship. 
So we can worship a number of things as a people. We, we can worship relationships. We can be consumed by that. We can be consumed uh, by success in the workplace. We can be consumed by money, by finances. Um, we can be consumed by finding the right person to marry, uh, to, to pursue. All of those things, if it's the thing that consumes us the most. And so what happens with sin is sin is the thing that is the picture that represents our identity and where it is that we are placing our affections into. It's rooted oftentimes in our, in our deepest emotions and our deepest longings to, to see these things fulfilled. And if it's anything outside of, of the body of Christ, of, of the things that God wishes, then we have to make sure that we're not practicing the lawlessness that exists in verse four. Sin is an identity issue. More specifically, sin is a refusal to find your identity in your relationship with Christ. We've seen this word throughout this book, this, this word abide, to, to remain. We, we said it's the Greek word meno, M-E-N-O. And it just simply means union. It means relationship with Jesus, walking closely with him. And so when he describes the person of lawlessness, the person that is regularly practicing this pattern of sin, what this is, is this is an identity issue at its core. That we are valuing the thing that we most long for to the extent that we're neglecting the relationship and the personhood of Jesus himself. And so sin does a funny thing in our midst. It has a, a way of, of stirring and of controlling our affections if we're not careful. careful. And, and what it ends up doing is it propels us to worship false gods, false idols, things like relationships and achievement and work above the Lord. And I'm often asked as a pastor, um, which sins would you say, pastor, are the worst kind of sins? And is there a way that, that, that we can sort of get by with like, hey, this, this, this sin's not a big deal. And, and we get into this posture. The heart of the question oftentimes is representative of this posture of just, I'm gonna manage my sins as best I can, right? And so this sin's not as bad as this sin. Obviously, uh, killing someone would be a worse sin, especially in society's eyes. Certainly, there are deeper consequences for that. Although all sin separates us from the glory of the Lord. It separates us from his presence. But what the text is specifically talking about this morning is, is it's wrestling with this question on, on what kind of sins does he take away? Because he seems to be addressing people who are practicing certain kinds of sins to the neglect of the others. And so how do we distinguish which sins exist in our life? And there's two ways to go about doing this. The first thing is a caution. And that the tendency is this, the tendency is, look to, is to look to the person to our right and to our left, to our front and to behind us and go, hey man, I see these sins in your life and these are the things that you need to fix, that you need to correct. And it is easy, it is simple to point out the sins of other people. That's the easy way. To look at my wife and go, hey, you're not doing these things. Or to look at Dane and go, hey, you were really harsh there, or you're neglecting this area, or what about this area in your life? It's really easy to get to a place where we start to, to point out other people's tendencies. But what I want to tell you this morning, that the most destructive sins in our lives right now are the ones that you are the most defensive about. Those are the ones that, that we should be the most concerned with. 
Not necessarily the, the moral depravity that you might see in your culture or you might say, hey, this is wrong. Yes, we are concerned about those things and we are concerned about the ethic and the virtue and those types of things. But friend, I'm telling you that my worst enemy, my biggest enemy doesn't lie outside of me, but it lies inside my heart and it exists right here that I am my own worst enemy. And that the tendencies that I have or that I should have, the most destructive sins in my own life are the things that I'm like, you know, um, Lord, I'm, I'm not quite ready to deal with that. Or Lord, uh, but you don't understand the circumstance that, that I'm in. You don't follow the temptation that, that I'm in. That, that how am I supposed to resist? How am I supposed to walk away from those things? Friend, this morning, ask yourself just this really simple question. Where is it in your own life that you have become defensive? And allowing this book to, to bleed out its message and its light and to let it expose the darkness that, that exists in, our, in all of our hearts here today. And to see our tendencies and where we gravitate and to ask ourselves, Lord, what is the thing that I am worshiping or the things that I am worshiping in your place? And it could be a number of things. But I want you to notice in verse six how it seems to intimate that when we are abiding in Jesus, we don't live in patterns of sin. Notice verse six. He says, no one, no one, not a, a single person who abides, who remains, who walks closely with Jesus in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So there's a couple of things here. He, he's writing all this stuff in the present tense and he's, he's essentially saying this. He's talking about patterns and habits in your life that exist. He's not talking about one night where you made a mistake. He's not talking about six months where, ago where, where you're dealing with something and you're, and you're walking in shame because of, of that one thing that either you did or someone did to you. But what he's talking about most explicitly is this pattern and this habit. It's a cycle that you constantly go in and out of and you're struggling with that because you're not handling it in the way that, that the scriptures would sort of teach us. But when we are abiding closely with Jesus, walking in relationship with him, we don't live in overarching patterns of sin. And I'm speaking to you this morning as a pastor who has had patterns of sin in his own life. Who's counseled hundreds of people along the way. And I seem to take a, a step forward and then I take two steps back with, with whatever your sin issue may or may not be. And fundamentally, it, it ultimately goes back to this posture of, of repentance and, and confession and, and certainly accountability, but, but also making sure that I'm not as focused on my sins as I am on my Savior. And so when I was in college, we, uh, the movie Band of Brothers came out. And so when, when I was in college, back in, when was I in college? Uh, 2000, 2004. Um, so Band of Brothers had just coming out recently. And so every men's accountability group, every men's guy group was called what? Band of Brothers, right? How original were we, right? Um, that was our deal. And I entered into like several of these over the course of three or four years. And, and, and pretty quick, I, we'd get started. Our, our motives would be great. We wanted accountability. We wanted to talk about our struggles and our issues. But, but every time this is what happened, over the course of several weeks and several months, like attendance just started waning and people quit showing up. 
And I didn't realize it at the time. Um, and it wasn't until later that I, I sort of learned like what discipleship was and accountability was. And because one of the th- mistakes that we made in this process was we'd get together to hold each other accountable and we would spend an hour just beating the snot out of each other because of our sin. And it was like this hour long, just confession of things and over and over and over again. And what happened was all of us sort of just, we kind of just lost hope. Like, yeah, we're all struggling with the same thing. Like, now what? Like, we didn't know what we were doing. And the problem with with bands of brothers or, or, or groups that exist like that is the tendency is to just hammer on the sin or the struggle. And what has to happen with great wisdom and counsel and understanding is that, yes, we confess our sins to one another, for God is faithful and just to forgive us and to hear us. But at some point in the group, here's what has to change. We have to spend more time talking about our loving Savior and who he is and leaning into that truth and less time just sort of entering into these stages of sin management and going, I'm okay because I'm not dealing with things exactly the way perhaps that you are going through those same things. This is what he means by using the word to to abide in Jesus, for we do not live in the patterns of sin. But I want you to notice he transitions in verse seven and eight, and he he talks about the devil. And so we'll get a little weird and charismatic in here for a second. So it looks what he says in verse seven, little children, Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, and the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. If you look further at verse eight, he says this, whoever makes a practice of sinning is the devil, that word devil, it, it means literally accuser or slanderer. Like just the most literal translation of, of who this guy is. He's an accuser and a slanderer. John 8, gives us some insight into who he is. And he says this, when, when he lies, the devil, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. He is a liar and he is a father of lies. Now the question is this, how could it be that the devil, the accuser of the brethren, how does he accuse his people? How does he, how does he going about that? I believe the number one way and the number one tool in, in his toolbox and the way in which he accuses you and me to walk into shame and, to, and to, to walk in this posture of condemnation is that he causes us to look at our sin rather than our savior. Because the more we, we do that and that awareness that we should acknowledge the sin, but, but so, much, so many of us get hung up on that and there has to be a transition where, listen, our, our affections, the way that my affections are stirred is not sin management, but rather the way my affections are stirred is when I lift my eyes and I put them on the hope of glory in the Son of God and in Christ who is redeemed and who is risen and born again. And that's who I wanna spend my time talking about. But then look in verse nine and he says this. He says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born again. 
Listen, it's, a, it's sort of an old-timey phrase that you guys who have been around for a long time, you used to use it. We kind of got away from it for whatever reason, just to say I'm born again. Maybe it got overdone, it got overplayed, I don't know. Maybe it's a 50s thing or an 80s thing, I don't know. To be born again, we don't hear it talked about like that anymore. But what this is talking about and the idea of being born anew is he's talking about regeneration. And so here's the question, well, what does that mean and what implications does that have? What is Regeneration. A part of regeneration is this, that to a degree there is some kind of moral reform in your life. But that's not the goal. There's a whole group of parents that went under a study years ago uh, and, and he, basically the sociologist came out and said, most of these parents, these thousands of kids, their goal and, and their religion can be characterized as this. It was just moral therapeutic deism. The goal of the parents was this. I wanna raise my kids to be good kids, productive members of society, um, that there's a God. I'm not really sure it's the God of the Bible. I don't really know if it's Jesus or not, but there is somebody out there sort of guiding all this. Maybe it's George Lucas's The Forge. Maybe he's got it right. Uh, I don't know. There's something, and, and my goal is, is, and I had parents tell me this when I was at Travis even, uh, that their goal was just that their kid would not end up in jail and, and their daughter would not end up pregnant. And if, that, if, that, if they accomplished that goal, they were a success as a mom and dad. Like that was it. And, and certainly regeneration, that we want moral reform, but, but this can't be the, the only goal. Uh, part of regeneration is renewal. Like, I want to be like freshly walking with God and renewed in my walk with God, but, but that's not the ultimate goal of, of regeneration. To, to make into a better condition is certainly a part of it, but it's not the goal. The goal of regeneration, friend, the goal of being born again is a recognition that God is taking dead things and he is making them alive. Not better, not just improving on the situation, though those things actually happen. The goal of being born again, in its most literal sense, we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. And because of Christ and who he is, I've been made alive in Christ. I'm not wounded and he fixed my wound. I'm not hurting and he took my hurt, though he does those things. The goal of the gospel message is that God would take the dead things and he would make them alive again. He would renew them. And so here's, here's how the text ends this morning. He, he gives two um, evidences in the last two verses of, of how do you know that you've been born again? And he gives two really, really simple qualifiers that we're gonna end with today. The two effects of the new birth. Number one in verse nine is this, is that we do not regularly practice the habit of sinning. Verse nine, look at it. It says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So if we have been made anew because of Christ, then we are a people that are pursuing health and flourishing and we are fleeing from sin as quickly as we can and we are running to the arms of our loving Savior. But it's not just about not practicing sin. I want you to see in verse 10 that he says the second qualifier is not just practicing sin, not practicing it, but there is a genuine love and affection for one another. Look at verse 10 and he says this, but by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God. It's really simple. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. So if I continually exist in a pattern of sin and or 
I genuinely do not love my brother. Who's my brother? My, my brother can be anybody. It could, it could be my brother or sister in Christ in the family. It could be my neighbor across the street. But, but here's the deal. Here's how one scholar summarized verse 10. He simply said this. Verse 10, what it means is, is that love is righteousness in relation to others. That I am outwardly displaying my right standing with God and, and connecting with other people in the process. And so here's, here's how I want to finish this morning with you. This, this whole text leads to verse 10 and this, this one idea that if I know Christ, that I am pursuing being right with other people and loving them. I'm not practicing sin and I'm pursuing loving my brother and my sister in Christ. But friend, Here's the idea. Sin makes you believe that you can change your relationships without needing to change yourself. Like this is the big, like if we miss this, we, we miss it. It is sin that convinces us that the biggest problem in our relationships is someone else and not ourselves. I know there are silly people that do silly things. I know there are difficult people that, that are, are really hard to love at times and, and immature and, and offensive. I, I understand that. But within church life, within home life, even within working relationships, the better posture for the people of God in, in the sorority houses, in the fraternity houses, in the high schools, and in the middle schools, wherever it is that we find ourselves, when we begin to fundamentally understand that sin is the thing that makes us believe that we can change without change someone else, without needing to change ourselves, fundamentally, we will end up in a posture of despair. One of my favorite things to do, I love teaching and preaching. I love doing counseling. And I've done a lot of counseling over the years with married couples in particular. And I've spent a lot of time talking and reading and sharing and learning and growing. And, and here's, here's what, I, what I've learned over the years in this process, over 15 years of doing this and talking with couples. That, that if at some point there's not a shift in the conflict or even in the marriages that want the tune-up, a shift in the idea that the person that I've got to fix in my relationship is me and not my spouse, if they don't grasp that at some point, then I've watched the marriages and the relationships fail. I've watched them erode. I've watched some of them just sort of eke by and just go, that's fine. We'll just live with this and we'll just settle with these types of things. And so what has to happen fundamentally in our relationships is that we need to realize our own need and desire for ourselves to change. And this becomes demonstrated in how we love and how we care for our brother. This morning, church, my, my question to you is this. If you're here today and you've never been changed by the gospel, you have to start fundamentally there with a personal relationship with him. You'll never experience true success or, or harmony in your relationships horizontally if you've not been vertically aligned with our Savior and given your life to him and been redeemed by him and allowed him to regenerate 
something that is dead and to make it alive. But if you did, then this needs to be a reminder for us to pursue the, the health in our relationships with one, another, with one another and alongside one another as we pursue the person of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, um, we thank you for your son. We thank you that we have been redeemed and regenerated by him, that you have given us new life. And so God, I pray that as your people that we would be able to respond with that truth in a way that we send out people in our city, that we would be in, in right relationship with, with our neighbors, with our brothers and sisters, and, and most importantly, with, with each other. As we pursue your best for our life. I pray for my church today, Lord, I pray that any conflict that they are in, in their homes, in their dorms, at their schools and in their offices, Lord, I pray that you would allow us as a people to be the peacemakers in those places. That you would allow our church to be the ambassadors and proclaiming the good news that you have come to save sinners and that we can be born anew through your spirit. And so God, would you help us as we go from this place today? Would you not let our worship be confined to this room? Would you help us? With every head bowed and eyes closed and as our team begins to play, we're just gonna enter into a time of response and in worship. Whether we stay where we are and we seek the presence of the Lord or we come down to this altar, we grab a staff member, we grab a small group leader and just say, pray, pray, pray for me. Let me pray for you. But let this be a time of, of seeking the presence of the Lord to change you. Ask God, where, where do I need to change today to be right with my brothers? be right with my sisters and then let the Holy Spirit just work on you our team's going to sing I'm going to invite those that want to stand to stand with me as we respond or you stay seated and continue to pray and just be obedient to what the Lord would have you do this morning